This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 229, Paris. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. In our trip around the world this month, we land in Paris, home of great bread and snooty waiters. But we'll leave the topic of restaurants for another day. Today we will discuss how Napoleon's triumph measures up with that of Jesus Christ, whether residence and citizenship are synonymous concepts, why intense planning couldn't save a thousand-year-old cathedral and won't save the Lord's Church, and why the lights of Paris have been shining on me in the game room lately. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Paris being the city it is, having the history it has, it's perhaps not surprising that the Arc de Triomphe is likely the most famous triumphal arch in the world. It wasn't the first, it wasn't the last, it wasn't the biggest, but it is far and away the one most likely to be on a poster or in a photography book. I'm sure Napoleon Bonaparte would be proud. The Arc de Triomphe is in the middle of Place Charles de Gaulle at the western end of the Champs-Élysées. It was constructed for the return to Paris of Napoleon in 1810, after the Battle of Austerlitz. The Ark was not fully completed until the 1830s. His remains were brought back from the island of St. Helena, where he was exiled and eventually died. The emperor got to take one more trip through the Ark on his way to his final resting place. The Arc de Triomphe was originally meant to be a celebration of Napoleon. Sure, other great heroes of French history are immortalized on the Ark's physical structure, and certainly it's seen more as a celebration of France today than as a celebration of any one individual. Still, a pile of stones 50 meters high, 45 meters wide, and 22 meters deep is not intended to be a tribute to modesty. The idea of a triumphal arch is that a conquering warrior would not only have a grand reception to welcome him home, but also have a lasting memorial to the greatness of his accomplishments. It's the ultimate in impracticality. It provides little by means of shelter. It blocks traffic more than it facilitates it. And of course, it's extremely expensive in terms of both money and man hours. But if that's what it takes to properly venerate our heroes, then that's what it takes. I can't help comparing it to Jesus' triumph, though. Five days before his crucifixion, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem for the last time. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, records the event. It required minimal planning. A nameless citizen volunteered the colt of a donkey for our Lord to ride. As far as we can tell, no advance notice was given at all. No money was raised or spent. And yet it turned into the event of the year in Jerusalem. Everyone who was anyone saw it. The citizens spread clothing and palm fronds on the ground in front of his procession, perhaps to cushion the Lord's ride, perhaps to keep the dust to a minimum so everyone could see better. Everyone shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Such a claim surely had never been given to Caiaphas, the high priest. Indeed, to anyone who entered Jerusalem in the last thousand years. The tumult was such that the Pharisees wanted Jesus to clamp down on his followers. Jesus answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Luke 19.40 The fact of Jesus' triumph could not be kept quiet. The Pharisees need not have worried. Jesus did not form an army and assault the Romans when he arrived at the temple. He merely took a look around and then left. The actual conquest would have to wait. Napoleon would have done it differently. 
He would have made a great speech. He would have embarrassed and isolated his detractors. He would have capitalized on the moment in the loudest and most visible of ways. But then Jesus had a very different idea about kingship than Napoleon did. The triumph he was celebrating was not a past conquest of military opponents, or even a future one. He was celebrating the completion of his earthly mission in the flesh. The only thing that remained was his death. But that would be his crowning glory, not his ultimate failure. His return after dying would not be a pointless show featuring a lifeless body. Jesus conquered the grave itself. He lived to see his complete victory, and he continues to live as we wait for ours. He built a memorial for us to remember him by. Not a pile of lifeless stones, but a special meal to be shared with other believers. He spoke of that meal a few hours before his crucifixion. He told the disciples they were to eat bread and drink the fruit of the vine to remember what he was about to do for them. Jesus had not checked off the final box at his triumphal entry. But it was an accomplished reality in his mind and in the mind of God. And in the same way we, when we come to his memorial, can see past the moment to the full resolution of all things. Jesus has conquered all things for us. One day that will be shown in our own resurrection. In the meantime, we celebrate his triumph. This is what I've been reading. Friedrich Chopin, the great pianist and composer, is likely the greatest artist in the history of Poland. He's probably the most famous Pole in any walk of life. The International Chopin Piano Competition and the Warsaw Chopin Society celebrate his work through performances and competitions held in his name. When he died in 1849 at the far too young age of 39, he arranged for his heart to be entombed in a jar of alcohol and returned to his native land. Yet Chopin left his home in Poland when he was 20 and apparently never went back. He spent virtually his entire adult life in Paris, eventually receiving French citizenship. In Tad Sult's book, Chopin in Paris, he tells the story of Chopin's life in the City of Lights, his social climbing, the society friends who shaped his existence, and a host of other considerations that made Paris home for Chopin. He did most of his work in Paris. He became famous in Paris. He met the love of his life, the famous author George Sand, who was a woman, by the way, in Paris. And in the end, he died in Paris. Through it all, though, he fiercely clung to his Polish heritage. He sought out Polish friends. He wrote dozens of mazurkas, which are traditional Polish dance tunes. The letters he wrote to his father back in Poland were in Polish. But he never visited his father back in Poland, nor did he attend his funeral in Poland. At one point, Chopin was accepting commissions from the Russian noble class that was persecuting the Poles. Throughout the various patriotic uprisings in Poland, Chopin never volunteered for military service like most Polish men his age did. Granted, his health was terrible. He fought lung ailments his entire adult life. Still, he could have found a way to contribute in some way, and he didn't. I'm genuinely torn here. Exactly how would you define the term homeland? Is it where your roots are? Where your heritage is? Is it how you identify yourself? Because by that definition, Chopin was definitely Polish. But if you define it in more concrete terms, you get a very different answer. Chopin always returned to Paris. He delighted in Paris. If he would have said on vacation, I'm ready to go home now, he would have been talking about Paris. I think Christians have the same problem. 
If I were to ask you where your home was, you likely would give me your street address. If you were traveling abroad and someone asked you about home, you likely would talk about your town, your state, or your nation. I'm not sure I would criticize you for that, especially if you followed that up by saying, my real home is in heaven. But being a heaven citizen is more than just flashing a baptismal certificate as though it were a passport or driver's license. It involves a sense of real belonging, an attachment to kindred, and history. And it necessarily includes a certain sense of disconnect when you are somewhere else. Making yourself at home in someone else's house is just an expression. Nobody really does that, nor should they. You're a visitor. And until you start paying rent, you remain a visitor. And it's not just a matter of making the most of our temporary residence. Long-time listeners are no doubt tired of hearing me reference Philippians 3.20, but listen to it one more time. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul isn't just talking about someone coming to save us from our sins. Jesus has already done that. We are eagerly waiting for Jesus to save us from planet Earth. Being here is a hardship under the best of circumstances. It doesn't mean we can't rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul goes on to write in Philippians 4.4, but we rejoice because our true home is waiting for us, and that we won't have to be in this foreign land much longer. This is what I've been hearing. Notre Dame de Paris, or just Notre Dame for short, was built on a small island in the Seine in the year 1163. For almost a thousand years, it has been a landmark in the middle of the city, providing backdrops to countless films, settings to numerous books and stories, most notably Victor Hugo's classic The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and at least one board game which featured too many rats for Tracy's taste and too much beige for mine. Anyway, you get the idea. No trip to Paris is complete without seeing Notre Dame. On April 15, 2019, Notre Dame caught fire and a significant part of the structure was destroyed. Fire is a constant fear in old buildings. Even if the exterior is made out of stone, virtually everything on the interior is made out of wood, fabric, paper, or some other flammable material. A thousand years ago, firefighting consisted mostly of pumps and bucket brigades. And for the vast majority of that time, nothing really changed. Of course, modern buildings are built with much better materials and techniques. Local ordinances generally require some kind of safety system to minimize the damage fire can cause. The guardians of French culture naturally didn't want a national treasure to be completely gutted for safety or any other reason. So they opted for a basic system of smoke detectors, trusting that regular security forces combined with city fire brigades would be adequate in case of an emergency. And really, that probably should have worked. At the very least, the damage did not have to be as severe as it turned out to be. The problem was the security forces who heard the smoke detectors go off did not call for the fire brigades. Instead, they sent a guard to investigate. The guard went to the wrong part of the cathedral attic, saw no problem, and gave the all clear. It was 15 minutes before the error was detected. A second trip to the attic found the fire well advanced. The fire brigade was finally summoned more than a half hour after the initial alarm went off. Firefighters arrived in less than 10 minutes, and they were able to contain the damage somewhat. But there's no doubt it was far worse than it had to be. That's the problem with systems. Invariably, they require humans to operate them. Even so-called automatic systems need maintenance and repair from time to time. And humans make mistakes. The phrase, I'm only human, is a cliche for a reason. 
human failure is not necessarily a comment on the effectiveness of the system. Maybe the plan's fine, and the people in charge of implementing the plan need to do a better job. In the case of the Lord's Church, of course, the planner is Jesus Christ. It should go without saying, then, that the plan is perfect. If the church is infested with a spiritual equivalent of rot, rats, or rust, go back to the manual. See what Jesus says on the matter. Then do that. You'll be fine. But that requires several steps of human initiative, and humans are not always up to the challenge. In 2 Kings 22, we read how the book of the law was found in Josiah's day, which is to say it had been lost. How exactly that could have happened boggles the mind, but it did. I'm confident that modern spiritual leadership can lay its hands on a Bible any time, day or night, so that shouldn't be a problem. But that presupposes leadership is interested in what the Bible says on the matter. If common sense or popular opinion is going to be the determining factor, we might as well not have a Bible at all. But even if you're willing to consult the Bible, you have to truly believe what it says for it to be an effective remedy. The Holy Spirit's quite clear in general terms and in many specific terms regarding the proper conduct of Christians, how they should be led, what worship should look like, etc. These are not simply tidbits of history. They are rules of operation, handed down once for all to the saints, Jude 3. The Lord's church is twice as old as Notre Dame and infinitely more valuable. Take care not to start any fires. If you stumble upon a fire, put it out immediately. And always be on the lookout for hot spots, ready with a Bible in hand to render aid. Too much is at stake for us to sit idly by and assume that since it's been here forever, it will somehow manage itself. Jesus will manage his church, no doubt. But that doesn't mean we can't minimize the damage that's done on our watch. This is what I've been playing. The official name is Paris, la Cité de la Lumière. And that's the last time I'm going to try to speak French today, I promise. The English translation is Paris, City of Lights. And it's the name of a game we've been looking at for several months and hadn't yet pulled the trigger. Usually that means we're going to pass. But I found myself at the game store with Paris on my mind, noticed the game was not that expensive, and I made an impulse decision. Not something we do very much anymore with games. But I think it worked out pretty well this time. In Paris City of Lights, you and your opponent are basically putting weirdly shaped buildings out on a common board. As is usually the case, there are a variety of ways to score. But the simplest is to make sure you get the largest buildings possible and then place them where they are adjacent to as many lampposts as possible. I feel compelled to mention here that this sort of game is one of the few that I tend to win. For whatever reason, Tracy really struggles to see how shapes fit into spaces. I, on the other hand, am the guy you want to call to help you pack your suitcase or your moving van. Getting things to fit is what I do. I don't want to count my chickens before they hatch, but I'm thinking if I can get Tracy to play Paris City of Lights with me 30 or 40 more times in the next couple of months, I may even pull even with her on the 2023 scoreboard. Hey, dare to dream, right? In a perfect world, the title of a game would give you as much insight as possible into what the game is about. Paris City of Lights does that and more. It's about the city of Paris. Check. But Paris is being celebrated because of the thousands of lights that famously decorate the nighttime view. Maybe it's just a reference to the city's famous nickname. Or maybe, just maybe, finding a way to emphasize the lights would be a good way to play the game. I'm by no means an expert in this game or games in general. 
but I do think I'm onto something here. Being a Christian is all about being like Christ. That should go without saying. But maybe it doesn't. Plenty of Christians define themselves as being excellent at procedural matters, church attendance, doctrinal purity, standards and practices, that sort of thing. And I hasten to say here, none of that is bad. It's always good to adhere to the New Testament standard. That should go without saying, too. Other Christians don't concern themselves with behavior even that much. The idea of living in Christ is nonsense to them. Not that they think it's a silly notion, but rather they have no idea what that even means. They may mouth platitudes about the golden rule, and they're quite likely to say, judge not that you be not judged. But actually looking at the life of Christ and seeing him as a model of character, behavior, and submission, not so much into that. Perhaps it's time for you to ask yourself exactly what being a Christian means to you. The world's full of social clubs and self-help groups. The body of Christ is not that. At least, it's not primarily that. Being part of his body is being committed to the head, even Christ, Ephesians 4.15, and being the best member you can be. You're attached to Jesus, and by extension to other Christians, 100% of the time. And in so doing, you bear fruit in his name, to the glory of God the Father, John 15.5. It's not a complicated concept. It's right there in the name you wear. A Christian is an imitator of Christ. Not a great imitator sometimes, but an imitator nonetheless. And since we're talking about the city of lights, note how Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John 8.12, and again in John 9.5. When you embrace his light, you become the light of the world also. According to Matthew 5.14, wearing the name of Jesus, can you imagine a greater honor? So wear that name with pride and humility and pray that God help you be more worthy of it every day. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.